Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. We have completed our journey through Genesis, so we are now moving into Exodus, and there's a lot of implications for the period of the Exodus, so we'll talk about the actual event of the Exodus, and then, of course, after the event comes the giving of the law, and we are introduced to one of the most important people in the Old Testament, which is Moses. That's primarily what we'll talk about today, kind of his origin story, if you will, if you're a big superhero fan comic books, things like that. This is the origin story of the hero of Moses. So we're going to talk about the first four chapters of Exodus, which is kind of basically gets you from Moses' birth to right before he's confronting Pharaoh. Um, So again, Moses is one of the most important people in the entire Bible. I feel like I say that a lot. We've gone through some important people recently. Now, I talked about Joseph. I said his story is one of the best and most important. And he's pretty important too, don't get me wrong. But really his story is what shines. But we talked about it. We talked about Abraham. Abraham, I would say, is the preeminent person of all of the Old Testament, humanly speaking, of course. Um, And then you've got right behind him, Moses, and then probably your third one, you're going to have David. Those three are basically the most important people in the lore of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. So we're coming up to Moses. Of course, his impact is not just going to be the Exodus, but also the receiving and the giving of the law which is going to govern Israel for centuries. So there's a lot of important things about Moses. So getting to know where he came from, I think is really helpful for us to know because a lot of times when we think about these uh, Old Testament heroes, we can think about all the good things they did and maybe that one bad thing. But what we have to remember is that pretty much every person that God uses in scripture, that we get some really explicit account of like ways they messed up. Uh, The only one that I... Now, you don't really get a great one is for Daniel. That guy's kind of a goody two-shoes. He's always doing the right thing. But with pretty much every other hero of Scripture, we see kind of their their flaws, so to speak, um, their hubris even, um, the things that kind of make them think, is this a person that we'd have as a hero? But I think that has such important implications for us because sometimes we can get really bogged down and weighed down by the idea like, I'm not good enough. God couldn't use me. I've done this. I've done that. Uh, that's the story of redemption that God has throughout scripture is that he uses broken people to accomplish his goals. And there's a beauty in how he repairs that brokenness and creates us into something new and does things through us, even in the midst of our sinfulness. So we'll kind of turn back around to that by the end. We'll be talking about Moses. We will start here in chapter one of Exodus. Start by reading eight through 11 says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Okay, so if you remember the end of Genesis, Joseph's family, it's about 70 people at that time, moved to Egypt as a result of famine, and everybody gets along. It's kumbaya every night by the fire over there by the Nile because everybody loves Joseph. It's his family. Everybody's going to show him respect. But then someone comes along who didn't know Joseph. And in the very first part of Exodus here, we see that the uh, people of Israel, the generation, they're being fruitful and multiplying greatly in the land. So there's some fear for the people of Egypt. Um, 
so it's basically what are all these this huge group of foreigners doing in our land what if they join our enemies so uh in response to their fear they decide to enslave them so uh however as even in the middle of this it says that the nation of israel continued to grow so they then took more drastic steps down to verse 16. Uh, let's go to 15, actually. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So uh, they start to resort to infanticide to kill these male uh, Hebrews uh, when they're born. And he's giving this command to some of the Hebrew midwives, so the ones helping birth the children. Um, not a great strategy there by Pharaoh. The midwives didn't, and they secretly would just be like, oh man, we got there just a little bit too late and they'd already given birth and ah, what are we going to do? So that's basically how they get around that for a while. So then Pharaoh, by the end of chapter one, is giving this command to all the people. Everyone knows that if a son is born to the Hebrews, that he is not just to be killed, but cast into the Nile. So there's also some implications there with how the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, so you could even say that perhaps this was like a uh, sacrifice to the god of the of the Nile, a child sacrifice, but only with the Hebrew boys, and the girls were allowed to live, so that was kind of the way that things were working at that time. Enter Moses. So down in chapter 2, we see that there's another boy born. So we're going to read verses one through eight says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, and saw, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So... During this difficult time in the people of Israel's history, um, we have the story of Moses being in danger of suffering the same fate that many of the Hebrew boys were facing. So his mother decides to hide him in a basket, is eventually found by a daughter of Pharaoh. And then sister, who is keeping an eye on him, goes ahead and says, hey, what if I found somebody to nurse him for you? And brings Moses back to his own mother. So clearly a huge blessing there. But then we know that eventually he goes back to the house of Pharaoh. Um, it's estimated around the age of four that he would have been considered fully weaned. So um, probably not just having breast milk that whole time, obviously, but um, that would be the time of fully weaning a child. So kind of sad as you think about a mom giving up their child and then getting that time back, but then eventually having to give them back away to uh, the people who are the ones killing all of your people. So Kind of a a really bittersweet moment there for Moses' mother. Very tough. But that's what happens. And so Moses ends up growing up in the house of Pharaoh. And then by the end of chapter 2, or um, no, actually just by the end of verse 10, we're in the middle of chapter 2, we get a major fast forward to 
um, a time that is described when Moses had grown up. So you may wonder, what does that mean? Is he like 12, 18, 21, 25? So the best, the historical, the traditional belief. So we take traditional belief to be things that have been passed down through one way or another to be not on par with scripture, but in places where scripture is silent, that's generally what we will go with. So this actually is listed in the, it's called the book of Jubilees, which was a, uh, probably in the first, uh, probably in the like intertestamental period between 400 and zero BC. It's probably when this was written. So this was probably all handed down through tradition and then eventually written down in this. So it's like, we're talking like a difference of 1500 years. So we can't take this to be just definitely true. But the tradition is at this point, Moses believed to be 40 years old. So he's not just like 13, 16, 18, 21. He's 40 years old when this uh, grown up period has had. The only real um, number that we're going to get for Moses is eventually when he confronts Pharaoh, he's 80 at one point. There's a a verse that says he's 80. So that's really the only clear um, time where we see Moses' age. But this is kind of the traditional belief is that he was about 40 years old. So if that's helpful. Uh, But then this happened. He had grown old, but not very wise. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses um, sees uh, one of his people being beaten by an Egyptian, which, as you might imagine, made him quite emotional and upset. And uh, he decided that he would kill this Egyptian and then obviously not wanting to be found out he hides him in the sand now I don't know how many of you saw the DreamWorks movie Prince of Egypt came out in the late 90s I remember watching it as a kid I kept getting that one confused with Joseph King of Dreams so I for a while did not know really the difference between Moses and Joseph if you listen to this week's and last week's you should have a pretty good idea of the Bible breakdown separating Joseph from Moses since 2020. Okay, so I saw in that movie, and they kind of portray portray that Moses kind of like accidentally kills this Egyptian is like, but we see in there in verse 12, it says he like looks both ways before he does it, which kind of indicates that that was his intent. Now, I wanted to make sure I had the title of the movie right. Again, I was getting King of Dreams and Prince of Egypt confused. So I had to make sure that I got it right. And I didn't know this. Some of you may know this. So it came out in 98. Listen to some of the names who voice people in The Prince of Egypt, which is the story of Moses. Val Kilmer. Rafe Fiennes. That's the guy who plays Voldemort. Steve Martin. Jeff Goldblum. Sandra Bullock. Michelle Pfeiffer. And the music was done by Hans Zimmer. This movie is not messing around. Those are like that's several A-listers in there doing voices on Prince of Egypt. It had a budget of $70 million for an animated film in the 90s. Pretty, pretty good. Okay, so this is a serious film. It is not totally factually correct, but it is very interesting. So if you haven't seen it and you have kids who you think might be interested, that's pretty cool. But don't show them Joseph King of Dreams too shortly after or else, like me, they will grow up in a land of confusion. All that to say... It does not appear that, as Prince of Egypt told me as a child, that this was an accident that he was kind of ashamed of. It seems like maybe it was a crime of passion. So, you know, at least in the American legal system, we view that differently than another kind of uh, premeditated murder. But either way, seems intentional. Um, And then 
he goes out the next day and two Hebrews are fighting. He tells them to stop. And they're like, what are you going to kill us? And then he realizes that he has been found out. And so he flees. He runs and he runs to a place called Midian. So Midian um, is going to, is in scripture fairly uh, often. The Midianites often are bullying the Israelites, especially think about judges. They come up a few times of people who kind of uh, are enacting God's judgment on the nation of Israel as they turn to uh, pagan worship and things. So anyways, he goes to Midian and he sits down by a well. And while he is at this well, some uh, daughters of a priest come by and they're going to water their father's flock. And then these like bullying shepherds come in and run them off. But Moses stands up for the daughters of the priest and he saves them. And then he waters their flock. I'm literally reading this from verse 17. So this is not like even me shortening it. That's literally what it says. And uh, so obviously they are very excited that Moses has saved them. So they bring him back home. They're like, dad, this guy, he was super nice to us. And so he's basically that Moses got left behind. He's like, why have you left him behind? Bring him in, like bring him to the house. We got to at least serve this guy dinner. So um, this guy is described as a priest of Midian. His name is Rule, and his name is also listed as Jethro later. So the belief is that these are this, this is incredibly likely they're the same person. So it's not an intention to say that there were two priests of Midian or that um, you might be, you might kind of infer from the way it plays out because uh, Zipporah, the daughter of Rule, is given to Moses as a wife, but then uh, Jethro is his father in law later. So you don't need to assume that he marries somebody else. It's rule is Jethro. Jethro is rule. So likely uh, Jethro was, and Jethro slash rule was a pagan priest. So uh, there's some reason to believe that he might have been a priest of God. One of it, one of the things is that, you know, when we get into chapter three and Moses is going to encounter God, like it doesn't seem like this is totally unfamiliar to Moses. Um, Midian, uh, the descendants of Midian were closely related to those of Israel, but there's a passage in Exodus 18 that I think kind of gives us a pretty good clue that he was probably a pagan priest. Uh, 11 and 12 of, uh, chapter 18 in Exodus says, now I, now I know this, so this is after Moses had told him basically all the things that went down, um, with Pharaoh. I won't spoil all that for you just yet, but he's basically telling him all the things that God did. And Jethro's response is, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So it seems like, you know, this could be a statement of, like, just once again, now I know that God is greater than all gods, but it kind of seems like he maybe even knew that our God, that Yahweh existed, uh, that he was amongst the gods, but maybe didn't have him in any sort of position of eminence. Um, and so this is kind of like where he realizes like, no, okay, God is the true God. Um, and the fact that he like then goes and offers the sacrifice and then Aaron and the elders of Israel come to eat with him. It seems like it's this kind of almost like this inclusion kind of ceremony here um, this ceremony of kind of repentance. So, uh, it's possible that he was a priest that was to God. You know, we see that a couple times in Genesis, but I, I would say it's a, a little more likely that he was probably a pagan priest that then by the end of Exodus comes to, uh, believe that God is the, the only true God. So 
a nice story there and a way that what happened in Egypt showed God's glory to people who didn't know. But anyways, all that aside, Moses decides to live with him. So he said, hey, you want to be my father-in-law? Sure. All right, I'm going to live with you. So they did that. They lived in Midian. And then Moses is going to have a very life-changing event that I just briefly referred to. Don't want to spoil the whole thing just yet, but there's a burning bush. So we'll read that. So um, it says here in verse one, before we get started, remember, he's a uh, Moses is a shepherd here. So I'll just go ahead and remind for any of you who haven't heard me talk about this before. Shepherds are really kind of this um, motif and theme throughout scripture of people of kind of like humble and lowly stature that uh, choose to act in obedience to God. So um, Abraham, David, Moses, Abel, um, there's more, but it's kind of, and then you think about when Jesus was born um, and the angels come to shepherds. So there's just a lot of symbolism with shepherds. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. So um, not something to just be overlooked that he just happened to be a shepherd, but there's something about shepherds in the scripture. It's this uh, theme that kind of always pops up. So chapter three, one through six says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So uh, just the context for what happens right before this, at the end of chapter two, it says that God hears his people crying out to be rescued. And he, uh, I'm using air quotes here, remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I put that in air quotes because we know he didn't forget it, but it's more that um, it's kind of a, this way of explaining that God's actions were in line with what he had already promised. So that's kind of what that's trying to so he hears the people crying out and he acting out of faithfulness to his covenant, quote unquote, remembers the covenant. And so that's when these actions begin to come forth. So this is a response. This calling of Moses appears to be a response of God's people um, crying out and asking for help. So God appears to Moses and he tells him what he's going to that he's going to go uh, before Pharaoh. So. Moses is told this and is very scared. And he gives not one, not two, not three, not four, but five attempts to get out of going. He tries his very best to get out of it over the next several verses. So the first one, he says, uh, who, am I, who am I to go before Pharaoh? So it's kind of like false humility. And God's like, well, I'll be, I'll be with you. So uh, I'll send you. It's, that's not going to really be a, a problem. And he says, okay, I'll give it my next best shot. He's like, well, you know, if I come to the people and they're going to be like, if I tell them the God of my father sent me, they're going to ask, well, what's his name? So Moses is kind of like, how am I supposed to prove that you're the one who sent me? So then we get this very well-known verse here in chapter three, verse 14 to 15. God or Moses asks, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this is when, this is the official deliverance of God giving his name, which is I am in English, which is translated um, from the Hebrew, um, which is Yahweh. So Yahweh is the verb form for I am. And so that is God's name. God's name is Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah, um, but it's it's really more properly to be pronounced uh, Yahweh. This is also referred to as uh, the tetragrammaton, which represents, which means tetra being four, the four letters, the four consonants that are in that name. So when it's written, it's referred to as the tetragrammaton, which people know what that means. It's not just anything with four letters. And if you are a an Orthodox Jew, and I'm using lowercase Orthodox, so not like an official like title of Orthodox Jew, but you're a, a Jew who holds to the traditions. Um, whenever you see Yahweh in the Bible, which we will see, it's when it's written Lord in that kind of uh, small but uppercase script. Um, they're going to say Adonai, which is a word for Lord, because they did not want to utter the name of God. But we, um, as Christians, we believe that uh, the veil has been torn between us and God. We do not need to fear saying God's name. We should be, um, we should not use it in vain, but that we don't have to fear saying the name of Yahweh. He's our God and we are his people. And the because of what Jesus has done, we have access to him. So this is where we get the name of God, the one that separates him just from God uh, in Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is a actually the plural of the word God, which is often uh, they use the plural for a singular to ascribe extra majesty. But other than saying Elohim, which could mean uh, a, a God of great stature, it could mean a pantheon of gods. Yahweh is what separates God, our God as uh, his name. So that's this big revelation to Moses and what we see also with Jesus talking in um, in John when he's going to say these things to uh, when he's going to say these things to the Pharisees, he's also going to say it in front of some of the people trying to arrest him. Anyways, so that's the this is kind of the origin of God being called I am. So it's in the midst of this protest which Moses is trying to get out of this by saying, "Well, I can't tell him who sent me," and he gives him this uh, very powerful answer. So he's got a good answer for that one. So that's the second attempt. Third one. Well, no, actually, in between, uh, in between these, um, God goes ahead and he warns Moses that Pharaoh is not going to let these people go easily. So Egypt is going to be struck with affliction. So he is in the middle of these protests. He's also warning him, like, this isn't going to be easy. So um, God's giving it to him straight that uh, he's not going to go and ask Pharaoh and that he's just going to be like, okay, sure, see you later. Um, so Moses' third protest then is they won't believe me. So he's like, oh, how in the world? They're not going to believe me. Even if I tell them this is your name, they're not going to believe me. And so then um, God shows Moses three signs that he'll do in front of the people in front of Pharaoh. Um, so one is uh, that he tells him to throw his staff down and it turns into a snake. And then he grabs by the tail. It turns back into a staff, staff snake, as I like to call it. And then he also has a leprosy sleight of hand in which he's going to tell him, stick your hand into your coat. 
and he brings it out and it's totally leprous, which of course is a um, flesh eating disease and it spreads very quickly. So that would be terrifying. But then he puts it back in his coat and everything's good. And then um, he's also going to have him show this sign of turning um, some Nile water into blood, not the plague one, but he's like going to pour some on the ground. So it's kind of almost a like a little, just a small little example of what God's going to do during the 10 plagues of turning the whole Nile to blood. So he shows him that he's like, okay, here's some signs. This is going to give you some legitimacy, basically. So Moses is like, okay, that's three. And so then we get one that's fairly well known. He tells him, ah, God, I would really love to do this, um, but I can't speak very well. So this is what he says in chapter four, verses 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So uh, now comes the question, because he's he's using this as an excuse. So we have to kind of examine, is this a legitimate reason? Or again, is he just trying to get out of it? Uh, because he's been trying to get out of this pretty hard. So I have a little mock like pro con list of did Moses actually have a speech issue? So I have read um, a commentary that says he definitely didn't. And I read uh, an article that said, oh, yeah, he definitely did. So all that to say, this is not like a super important issue, but you can judge for yourself um, if you think it's true. So I've got in the argument four, he did actually have. Uh, no, actually, I put these wrong. The argument against him. No, wait, no. Yes, I had it right the first time. The argument for him having a speech issue. This is pro, he has a speech issue. First, he the term he uses is basically it means kind of like he has a heavy tongue or a heavy mouth, which um, some people would be like, oh, he just was worried about speaking the right language. And maybe, but like the way he's saying it is almost like it's a physiological thing. And he's worried about like that the, his mouth is just messed up. His tongue is messed up. So um, he's at least purporting that he has like a, an actual like defect in his mouth. Um, the second reason I think that he could have a speech issue is that God does send Aaron with him. So that was kind of the solution he gives. So solution to a problem that didn't exist, maybe. And then the third one, God tells him, I will be with your mouth. So it's, it's this recognition of, he doesn't say your mouth is fine. He basically says, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to speak. I will help you basically. So those kind of lead me to think maybe he did have a speech issue. The things that would kind of lend you to believe that he maybe didn't are, um, there are examples of lots of examples there in this one commentary list, like 15, uh, false humility kind of in scripture, not false, like they're actually being prideful, but more like an overstatement of a weakness. For example, David in 1 Samuel 18, he talks about after he's anointed, I'm little known, but this is after he killed Goliath and he was like super famous for that. So um, it could just be an example of false humility. Um, also, Moses doesn't seem to have really significant issues with this in a lot of his ministry that we see after this. Um, you know, he spends all this time mediating between God and the people and this never really comes up again. So 
I think this is an opinion, so take it as that. I think he did have a speech issue that was not just him not wanting to go to Egypt, um, but that in the midst of that weakness, God used him, perhaps even over time healed him. Um, And then we also see instances where Aaron does step in for Moses, but also Aaron did more than just help Moses talk. You know, he ends up being um, the lineage of the priesthood. So um, I think he probably did, but... It wasn't just that um, Aaron went solely because this became an issue and was an issue for all time, but that there were other reasons that Aaron could go. So that's kind of the way I lean, that um, God just kind of used him in the midst of that weakness. Moses got plenty of weaknesses other than this one. So if if he doesn't have a weakness here, that's okay. He's got plenty. So anyway, so fifth one, he says, he just gets right down to it. This is in um, 413. He says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So just a really straightforward um, deal. He's like, please, I don't, I just don't want to, please just get me out of this. So finally, after all his whining, Moses finally does go. He meets up with Aaron in the wilderness. They're excited to see each other and they go to the land of Egypt. They go first to the people of Israel and they show these signs that God had given to Moses to show them that he was legit, that he was a prophet from God and not just some person. Uh, Aaron we do see that he does, he is the one that tells them what God told Moses says in verse three, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the side of the people. So he did the signs too. I don't know. Is something wrong with his sign hand? I don't know. So again, uh, Moses might just be a whiner. I don't, I don't know. It's a tough one, but regardless they go um, and the people realize, and they are excited that God has visited them in their affliction. It says they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So this recognition that God had come to them. So, that's the origin story of Moses before he actually is going to get in front of Pharaoh and lead the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and all those kind of things that we're going to watch him do and watch God do through him rather, more importantly. Um, but that's kind of how he gets his start. And again, just to circle back to where we started, um, this is just another clear example of scripture of how God works even in the midst of our brokenness and our imperfections. God is not looking for perfect servants. In fact, as we see in uh, in the letters to the Corinthians, Paul's going to say God's power is perfected in weakness. And we see that throughout all of scripture to say, I'm going to take this person who really has no business doing something great and to use them for something great really points to who God is, that he is able to work through even the people's brokenness. And that's something I want us to see in our own lives too, because we are prone to, I think, look at ourselves and think, well, God can't want me to do that. He knows X, Y, Z about me. He knows my sin struggles. He knows my past. He knows my heart. He knows my physical limitations, mental limitations, emotional limitations, relational limitations, whatever that may be. And we can talk ourselves into, no, he must that I must be misinterpreting what I feel like God's calling me to do. He's not calling me to share the gospel with that person. He's not calling me to serve at church. He's not calling me to um, reach out to see how someone's doing, see if they're okay. He would, he wouldn't use me for that. But Moses story and all the stories of all the people in the old Testament, except maybe Daniel, we see how God works in the midst of those weaknesses, in the midst of those sin struggles, in the midst of even unfaithfulness and complaining And so I hope that we can be a people too that are obedient to God and we don't try to second guess what we think God is calling us to, what he's leading us toward, 
but we can be people who recognize he's going to work even in the midst of those things. And then too, as just like the people of Israel, God sees us in the midst of our affliction. Now, remember this, we didn't talk about this yet. This whole ordeal with the uh, people being in Egypt is going to last 400 years, 400 years, long time that they're going to go through this difficulty. But we're reminded in the story that God saw them. God didn't forget about them. He saw them and he acted in accordance with what he had promised. So even though they were going through something very difficult, and even though it was for a long time, God acted in his timing. He acted in accordance with what he had promised them, which was that they were going to have this land. They were going to have lots of descendants. They were going to be a blessing to all of the world. And we have the promises of God as well, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he offers forgiveness through Jesus, that we have the Holy Spirit that not only guides us in this life, but is our seal for eternity. So we can't forget the promises that we too have in Yahweh, in I am, in the one true God, and that he sees us even in the midst of our affliction. He hasn't forgotten us. He still has plans. Like Jeremiah 29, 11 says, he has plans to prosper us. Now I know everybody loves to be like, who verses out of context? The character of God does not change. Our idea of prospering is often different than what God's idea of prospering is. Just like when we talk about how God does things for our good, his idea of our good is different than our idea of our good. And our good in God's eyes often involves suffering and affliction. But we're going through these things for our betterment, even because Well, mostly because we would never choose to go through something difficult to result in growth and further uh, knowledge and love for the Lord. We would choose the easy path every time. And just remember that God, God is true to his promises, even in the midst of affliction. And he's ultimately using those promise or he's using our circumstances for our good and for his glory.